Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to China and more specifically, I guess, Britain's troubled, anguished relationship with China over the years. It really stretches back, Helen, what, sort of 10, 20, 30 years, or even 100 years. And at the heart of it is Hong Kong, as we're going to discuss. But if you even look at today's relationship with China, you've got deliberations over Huawei, over nuclear power, how much the Chinese state should be involved in the British economy. It's a really fascinating story, and it brings us all the way up to today and these revelations recently about spying at the heart of the Westminster establishment. And James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, going to China still and defending the relationship, saying we have to engage with these people. It's really hard to kind of pick the thread through this relationship and figure out what's going on. It is. I think we're going to do some relatively long history yeah, uh, because of the Hong Kong issue. But in a way, we're going to make the centerpiece of what we're going to talk about these years that got commonly described because that was the language that David Cameron and George Osborne used of the golden era mm. of British-China relations from 2010 when the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats came in the coalition government through to, well, we can argue whether it's, well, really to 2016, um, I guess. And I know that that's a quotation, the golden era that's used quite regularly to describe this period. But what's notable about that is only one example of the kind of hyperbole in one sense Mm. that's regularly used, particularly by George Osborne. So he went to China uh, in September of 2015, and he said on that trip, we should run towards... Yeah, that's that's unequivocal. And if you look at George Osborne's chancellorship, David Cameron's um, premiership, I think it's reasonable to say that they bet an awful lot on China. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the question we're going to try to answer today is, why did George Osborne bet everything on China? And what has happened since that relationship has come under so much pressure since 2016. The British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, exchanged the final documents in December with the Chinese Prime Minister, Zhao Ziyang. If that joint declaration is honoured, then it's very good for Hong Kong, and it will be good for China. Because, you know, the history of the world is that countries may, somehow from their governments, obtain economic liberty, but the history is that that is always followed eventually by personal and political liberty. It's a question of time. You can't be half free. I think what is important is to recognize that the absolute basic foundation has got to be adherence to the joint declaration. Rather than weakening ties, Mr Osborne proposed a formal link between the Shanghai and London markets. I want to see our stock markets in London and in Shanghai formally connected. One of the world's most powerful men has arrived in London tonight. China's President Xi Jinping and his celebrity wife, Hong Liyuan. For all the warmth of the greetings, big questions hang over this state visit. China has reacted angrily after the government banned Huawei from the UK's 5G networks amid security concerns. We should approach China with our eyes wide open. Um, You know, it's not a surprise to me this morning, and I hope it's not a surprise to um, many people, that China is spying on us. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has accused China of interfering in democracy. 
Yeah, so Helen, you're keen to start this discussion with Hong Kong, really, because it's such a pivotal point. I mean, it comes up in the reading in 1990 with uh, Margaret Thatcher. It comes up again with Theresa May and Boris Johnson. It's kind of there at the heart, like a kind of the grit in this relationship. Um, so ha- give us the sort of the brief background of how this uh, relationship began. Well, I think one of the important things to see here is that from the point of view of China, that Britain is very much involved in what came to be called as their century of humiliation. That period, China's, China's hum- century yeah. of humiliation, really from the first opium war onwards until in Chinese Communist Party narrative, Mao's victory in, in 1949. And it was as a result of the first opium war that Hong Kong Island became a, a British colony in 1842. Uh, and then in 1898, Britain had a 99-year lease on an extended amount of what is now um, present-day Hong Kong, so extended the territory in the wake of China's defeat against Japan. And so that is the context, that 99-year lease, in which this question of what was going to happen to Hong Kong became an issue from the 1970s because 99 years from 1898 is 1997, yeah. which is the year in which Britain handed Hong Kong back to China. So what we see in the 1970s, after China has been recognised by the United States and is at the United Nations, is the Chinese leadership, particularly in the latter part of the 70s after Deng Xiaoping emerged as the dominant force in the Chinese leadership, saying the Hong Kong question has to be addressed. And it's in that context, when the Conservatives come into power in May of 1979, that Margaret Thatcher's government has to start dealing quite quickly with the question of what, are, what, what is Britain going to do about the Hong Kong question? So how, how does she deal with it? Because it, it, it must pull up so many different kind of emotional levers with, with Mrs. Thatcher. You know, in one sense, I doubt she wants to give any kind of British territory away or give anything to the communists. This is the Iron Lady and all of that. But at the same time, she doesn't seem from, as you've described it there, she doesn't seem to have that many options. There's a 99 year lease. I mean, that to me also just sounds such a strange kind of setup. You know, imagine Brighton or something or Dover being with a 99-year lease to the Russians or to the Chinese. It just seems hard to comprehend how that something like that came about. Well, also, I mean, obviously it belonged to, the reason it came about is in an imperial context in the years of the, the British Empire and, and China's weakness. But it's clear that the lease by the latter part of the 1970s is beginning to cause significant issues for the Hong Kong government because they're basically able to lease land out but they stop having any authority to do that. Once you're going beyond 1997, then they can't do that. And I think it's important to see as well that for China, this isn't just the Hong Kong question, it's the Taiwan question. It's like China from the late 70s is starting to talk about its territorial claims and what it regards. Getting its land back, I guess. China uh, on on Chinese um, territory. But I think what we can see, and this is obviously going to have a long-term consequences, is that for Margaret Thatcher's government, quite quickly, this starts to have implications about migration. Because if they're going to contemplate, which they are going to have to, because of the pressure that China's um, putting on, essentially giving Hong Kong back to China. Remember what we were talking about when we were talking about the migration Mm -hmm. episode, is that everyone who was a British subject... yeah had got rights now, obviously, as we know, we talked about it, it started to be qualifying from like 1962. But the prospect is that in a situation in which communist China takes control back of what has been liberal capitalist Hong Kong, that a lot of people who are British subjects are going to want to come to Britain. Yeah. And if you think about Margaret Thatcher, how she must think about the world, the parliament that she has grown up in, she's instinctively in many ways powerlite, as we've discussed a number of times. And she will be thinking back to Uganda and Kenya and all of these issues and the problems caused by Enoch Powell. And all of those changes in the law that happened from the 60s up through through the 70s that really restricted all immigration for non-white people from the former British colonies, essentially. And so here you've got this almost this blast from the past, haven't you? You've got this sudden, this potential 
for lots of uh, people from Hong Kong, not white, obviously, who are going to potentially come to Britain using this citizenship. So she faces this by sort of 1990. It's the end of her premiership, isn't it? Well, even before then, because I think there is a way of thinking about the British Nationality Act of 1981, which we've also talked about before, which is when this British subjecthood thing ends and British citizenship is um, created. And in that act, there's a separate category. It was then called British Dependent Territories Citizen. It later became British Overseas um, Territories Citizen. And the biggest group with that kind of citizenship was people living in Hong Kong. Now, in that act, they didn't get full citizenship with migration rights. It was quite restrictive in that respect. And it caused, it was opposed very much in Hong Kong for that reason, because they understood the implications of yeah. it. And in a way, when I was looking at this, I don't think it's quite a coincidence that the British Nationality Act was passed in 1981. And then the next year, 1982, the formal negotiations with China about an agreement to hand back Hong Kong to start. And that produces the 1984 agreement the joint agreement between Britain and China, which sets out the timetable for Hong Kong to go back to China in 1997 on the principle, at least for 50 years, of one country, two systems. Yeah, when I spoke to Charles Pohl about this, Margaret Thatcher's foreign policy advisor, he would say, look, in foreign policy terms, signing an agreement for 50 years is a lifetime. You can't get much more than that. Obviously, we did a 99-year lease originally. But that's when I was sort of questioning him on the effectiveness of that negotiation, essentially saying, well, that hasn't been lived up to. Something we'll come to later in the episode where the Chinese have essentially ripped that agreement up recently, way before the 50 years is out, where we essentially played on that. But just on the migration thing, the other thing that strikes me is that Mrs. Thatcher really is in a long line. It's, it, there's a sort of continuity there in that this is what the British state has come to decide it's in Britain's policy, uh, Britain's national interest is to uh, offer some kind of qualified citizenship for people outside of the UK where you don't get the right to come here. I mean, it's a pretty ruthless decision. But it was changed later, I think. I think after 1990 or the point of 97, at least, that people, I mean, this whole category then that had been created in the Nationality Act ended. But Hong Kongers who were there then could apply for British national overseas status. Yeah. And that's what's come into play in the last few years. Yeah, but so but the, the crisis starts in 1990, right? And I think this is a long forgotten moment in British politics. But Norman Tebbit, who had been, of course, Conservative Party chairman, close ally of Mrs. Thatcher, he leads a backbench rebellion against the government, still run by Mrs. Thatcher at the time, over this question of Hong Kong, people from Hong Kong moving to the UK. And the government had come under this tremendous pressure from the right, about what to do. And they had decided that I think it was going to be a 50,000 people would be allowed in from Hong Kong. If you think about today's numbers, that seems very small. And indeed, it would be very small compared to the offer that Boris Johnson would later make 20, 30 years later. But at the time, this was thought potentially to cause enough upset on the conservative backbenchers that they would vote down, they would vote against the government. In in the end, a compromise was reached between the more restrictive policies that Tebbit wanted and the policies that were less obviously racial that the Labour Party wanted. I think that it's important in this sense to think about the way in which the Thatcher governments were dealing with a, a kind of what's the way, a, a multiple set of issues around this at the same time. There was the Hong Kong issue and the migration issue. But I think that by this point, and obviously 1990 is in the aftermath of Tiananmen Square, mm -hmm. there's also these questions about how much should Western governments be trying to encourage the integration of China into the trade side of the, mm -hmm. the world economy. Yeah, And I think that there is a way of looking at Thatcher, which would say actually from her mindset, her general worldview, leaving the Hong Kong question aside for a, a moment, the idea of integrating nominally communist China into a more liberal, supposedly liberal anyway, like world economy, 
that's quite an attractive idea. And then particularly when you bear in mind that the effect of this in the end will be to act as quite an anti-inflationary pressure in the 2000s. That all works from Margaret Thatcher's worldview. Although it will pull her in different ways yeah. because she also, she had this sense that actually the end of the Cold War that was coming at the end of her premiership was not the end of history. She was yeah. not a believer in that. And she felt that this was going to create vast new problems with uh, the rise of nationalism and Russia. And we, we've spoken about this before. And Charles Pohl's really interesting on this and how he wrote a note to her sort of warning uh, that these kind of grander ideas that would come to dominate under the presidency of Bill Clinton, when he starts really opening up to China to try and pull them into the world system. Thatcher was not really a, a believer in this kind of utopianism at all. So I guess that must have pulled her in different in different ways. And of course, on top of all of this is this looming date of 1997. And so the UK government felt that as that approached, lots of people in Hong Kong would start looking to move to the UK. So if they didn't get on top of this quickly, it would be it would be a problem. So that they almost felt that by granting the possibility of being able to move to the UK, which they restricted to people of higher wealth, salaries, jobs, and the rest, that they would be able to stop this because it would almost be like a reassurance to people in Hong Kong that they didn't have to come. And also as well, the last three years at least when Chris Patton was governor in Hong Kong mm -hmm. is there was the whole thing about we're going to encourage democratic reforms. Yeah. Which obviously did cause some tensions with the Chinese in that period up to then. So there is a sense, I think, at that point in the 90s, and obviously it's the major government by that point, of trying to play things in several different directions. And in a way, that's where we are now, as we're going to get to. I think, though, there's a really interesting question about the Blair years, don't you think, Tom? Because in a way, you'd think that this post-97, after that, well, that's the year when Blair comes in, relationship, the Hong Kong issues like settled, China's a few years away from joining the World Trade Organization, which it did in 2001. This is the language of globalization coming yeah. out um, of Bill Clinton's White House. You would think that Tony Blair would have been very keen on the China relationship in an economic, in that sense, as an heir of Thatcher economically, seeing the benefits of integrating Britain, the British economy into a deep economic relationship with China in a way which happened in the US. But when you look at it, it's not really clear that Blair does do this. No, you think of Blair as the heir of Thatcher economically, as you say, but with that sort of added element of utopianism, that the future was coming, it was global, that China would, of course, fold gently into the world system, which obviously doesn't happen. But even though you would think that could be a kind of fixation, actually, it's not. And it's September the 11th, is Islamist terrorism, all of these things are the things that understandably dominate uh, his mind at that time. Obviously, you've got September the 11th and Afghanistan and then Iraq. And you speak to anyone in the Blair government and they would say that the China issue was just so far in the back of their mind. They didn't really pay any attention. Interestingly, you have this is the moment when Huawei, the, the Chinese telecommunications giant, starts making overtures to Britain and to British Telecom to start saying, hey, we can help you out, improve your system. British Telecom come to the government and say, well, we've got this offer to help us improve the system. And what happens? British Telecom go to the government and say, can we do this? And they look at it and they sign it off. And this is the beginning of this relationship, this sort of ever closer relationship between the British state and the Chinese state. But it's really hard to overestimate how little anyone really paid attention to it at the time. There was an understanding that it could cause some difficulties, but it started off as like a wedge at the beginning. It wasn't big enough to cause any concern, and China as an issue wasn't big enough to cause But I think there's another side of it as well. While that's true, it's also, I think, true that you just do not see the kind of deep interdependencies between the British economy and the Chinese economy that mm. are created in Germany at this time. Right. That's partly um, because Germany's still got a strong manufacturing economy in the 2000s, and it can think about exporting into the Chinese market and investing in it 
Uh, now, Britain in this respect is more like other European Union countries. So Germany stands out in this respect. Mm-hmm. But just because of Britain's like historical relationship and in a way, the opportunity that dealing with China over the Hong Kong question had created and the fact that Hong Kong remained this open liberal financial center with mm-hmm. very strong ties yeah. um, to London as a financial center. And in a way, Hong Kong worked as a financial center because common law, UK common law applied there. So it was in a way the portal between the Chinese communist state and yeah. the rest of the world, like financially, that you'd have thought was tailor-made for black. Now that is the space that Osborne is going to take British policy into. But interestingly, it's not the space that Blair took it into. No. Or no. Brown. They were just far more focused on other things, I think. They didn't see the great opportunity, but they were open to it. But I, I do think you can see the beginnings of the policy that will, I would argue, last all the way to today under Blair and Brown, which is a kind of an openness, a willingness to deal with China. They see the opportunities, although, like I say, it's more of a background issue at the time. But there are security concerns. So as we move forward and we get to, say, Gordon Brown and the role of Huawei is starting to grow, what they do is something really quite unique in that they sign off on the Chinese involvement, but with the condition that we create something called the cell, which will sit within Huawei, within Britain, and it's staffed by British people, essentially British security officials. So... We are sufficiently concerned about China's ability to use this technology to spy on us that we demand as a price that we have spies inside the system spying on them. So this is such a bizarre sort of setup, but this is what worked. And this is what existed all the way up till, well, essentially today or very close to today, this cell of people. Now, this would be the reassurance that the British government would require and need and and it would allow them to feel comfortable enough to continue growing this relationship so as you say on one side of the world you've got hong kong which could have been this source of friction but was turning into this source so almost like a bridge between the two countries and on the other you've got this bizarre setup in britain which makes britain feel comfortable enough to start allowing more and more chinese money to come in and that takes us up to pretty much 2010 and the and um, George Osborne and, and David Cameron and Nick Clegg coming, taking power and continuing the same policy. You know, I, I don't think it was a massive change. I think it was a continuation of a sort of logical uh, deepening of the relationship. I think that's true. But I think there's also, we can't really understand though the Osborne bet without understanding what was changing in China, because mm. I think it's a response by Osborne to the Chinese landscape. Yeah. In that sense. And I think there's two big things that are really important here. They, they, they connect each other in the end, but one comes first. And that is after the financial crash of 2008, China's got burnt on its dollar investments in the United States in, 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 in different ways. And it's very keen on internationalizing its currency, the renminbi. So making that a currency that will be used in international trade outside, of, not necessarily involving China and in finance. And obviously, Hong Kong is central yeah. to that because the principal already offshore renminbi market was Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And then given the very strong links between the city of London and Hong Kong, embedded really in HSBC, the bank which had its origins as you know, basically a trader, trading bank uh, in uh, Hong Kong, Osborne becomes fixated on this idea that the city of London will be in the West, the offshore renminbi center. Clearinghouse. Basically, and it goes way beyond that because actually I think it's in in 2000, it's either in 2013 or 2014, then Britain, the British government itself, actually issues government bonds, its own government bonds in renminbi. Yeah, I I remember this clearly as being... Is trumpeted as this is the sort of the future of the city. We're going. To, this is how Britain is going to make a killing. You know, we will be the main centre in the world for Chinese currency, and China is obviously going to be the world's biggest economy. We're laughing all the way to the bank. And then the second thing that this becomes then tied to is after Xi Jinping comes in is the Belt and Road Initiative. So this is essentially China 
turning economically in a way away from the Atlantic relationship, or at least qualifying the Atlantic relationship, turning inland, seeing Eurasia as an economic block that China hopes in some sense to be at the centre at, lots of infrastructure projects around uh, railways and ports. Yeah. And the idea then that Osborne has got is is that in a way London is going to act, no, in the Chinese mindset I should say, is is this is also going to be a renminbi project. Yeah. Basically Britain acting, or London I should say, acting as a financier for Belt and Road that George Osborne is willing to have a big confrontation with Washington over the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank. Yeah, so we are a founder member of this bank, which is sold as the sort of Chinese equivalent of the World Bank. And this is a big deal. And as you say, the Americans are really uh, frustrated with Britain because we're, we're not just giving it credence. We're, we're right there trying to, again, trying to make some money out of this. And you can see the strategy. You can see how the strategy makes sense from Cameron Osborne's point of view. Just as Mrs. Thatcher had seen Britain's membership of Europe as a way of getting uh, Japanese money into into Britain. Cameron Osborne saw the opportunity to get Chinese money into Britain. We would play the same trick, essentially. Again, get Chinese money into Britain, upgrade our infrastructure, keep London at the centre of the financial system and get rich and pull. If that means annoying the Americans, so be it. What's the great weapon that they can hammer us back into line. It was unclear at that time. And then, of course, everything kind of falls, that whole strategy falls apart. Well, there's one thing there I think we should bring out before we get to the falling apart in the in the second half, which we haven't talked about yet during this period, it's the energy question. Right. Because Osborne really, I think, from the beginning, thinks that this is crucial to this new British-Chinese relationship, 2010, so the year that the, the, this government starts, something called the UK-China Energy Dialogue was established. But the big issue was nuclear power mm -hmm. because Britain being committed to building at least two new nuclear reactors since 2008. The basic setup around nuclear power by the time the coalition government came in was that EDF, which is French state-owned company, had bought out our British nuclear power company. And then Centrica, which owns British Gas, was a, a smaller partner. In 2013, Centrica withdrew. And then it's in that space when EDF essentially is looking for a new partner that the Britain and China agree in a civil nuclear agreement. And then 2015, that the... Uh, Chinese Nuclear Power Company, China General Nuclear Power Group, signs an agreement with the British government and with EDF to participate in three new nuclear yeah, power this is projects. Yeah, this is a big moment. This is a really big moment. So that's Hinkley Point C in Somerset, which is being built, Sizewell C, and then crucially this one at Bradwell B. And this agreement said that that could be built with a Chinese design reactor. And that in this one that China would have the majority share. Is this is a bit like the investment bank that we just mentioned in that Britain's relationship with China gives China something more than just uh, the initial cash up front or the initial investment. It gives it something really important, which is a kind of reputational stamp almost that they if if they're building a nuclear reactor in Britain for the UK, you know the closest. Uh, partner of the United States, surely they can do that across the world. So it's, a, it's an important moment. And I guess we haven't mentioned this state visit of Xi Jinping to, to Britain in 2015. So this is all coming together at this point. And the kind of the Xi Jinping coming to the UK, red carpet rolled out, meeting with the Queen, hilariously. I think there were stories afterwards that they the Chinese bugged the Queen's royal carriage <laughs> at the time. But again, you see these moments where they're bogging the carriage and, and doing all sorts of stuff. And yet we're, we're pushing ahead with this. We obviously have this underlying sense that we don't trust them, but the money is flashing before our eyes. And the strategy does make sense in that, in, in 2015, even if you don't agree with it morally or you think it's short-sighted, there is a clear logic to it. I think there is and there isn't. I think the the bit that is already showing its weakness here that's going to come back and, and really haunt 
and David Cameron and George Osborne's successors is dealing with the Americans mm-hmm. over the uh, issue um, because it's the policy is based on the presumption that we can be the America's security allies and indeed dependent on the Americans in many ways where security is concerned. And then we can decide entirely for ourselves what kind of economic relationship we're coming a bit French. We're going to have with um, China. And although the, there's nothing that the Obama administration could do to stop us joining the Asian Infrastructure and uh, Investment Bank, and after we did, then other European countries follow suit. So in that sense, it was a major diplomatic defeat yeah. for the Obama administration. I still think there's a continuity in the American pressure that's going to ratchet up that we that that we're going to talk about after the break. A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let me be very clear and dispel this notion that we were opposed or are opposed to other countries participating in the Asia Infrastructure Bank. That is simply not true. What we have said and what we said to all the other countries involved is exactly what Prime Minister Abe said, which is, if we're going to have a multilateral lending institution, then you have to have some guidelines by which it's going to operate. So, Helen, we, we finished the, the, the last half there by saying that the Americans couldn't do anything. They were powerless. They'd suffered this diplomatic defeat as, as the UK, their closest security ally, goes off and runs into China's arms, paving the way for all the, of these other European states. But actually, over the following five years, under a less sort of diplomatic president, it would become clear that they did have powers to be able to force Britain to row into line. Yeah, I think that in thinking about that, we need to set a bigger geopolitical picture first. And that really is, again, about what's going on in China itself. So that what we can see in 2015 in China are two things that I think turn out to be really like important. The first of them is that China suffers a really big financial crisis in the summer of 2015 that runs on into 2016. And essentially in order to try to deal with that crisis and stop big outflows of capital out of China, then China has to introduce stricter capital controls. Mm -hmm. Now, these capital controls that were already in place had already been an impediment to this project of trying to internationalise the renminbi. But once it became clear that actually the, the controls could be tightened and quite dramatically, at least for a while, the idea then that international investors really wanted to hold this currency, that really became untenable. So in that sense, if Osborne had bet on internationalization of the renminbi and city's relationship to that side, I think crashes somewhat in 2015. And then the same year is the year the Chinese announced, I think it's in May of that year, this time, made in China 2025. So this 10-year project in which China is going to import less from the rest of the world. It's Mm -hmm. going to try to be not only self-sufficient in some crucial sectors, not least in relation to the energy transition, but actually try and create the dependency of other countries on China. And this, I think, puts the fear of God in Washington. And this is still the Obama administration. So this is the last 18 months or so of the Obama administration. And I think it's because of that fear that China 2025, which we have talked about before, we had a whole episode on it, that 
Trump is able when he is president to hold a, a relatively strong bipartisan consensus about one issue, mm-hmm. and that is being tougher with China. And that puts creates a whole different context then for the for what had been George Osborne's bet on China. Yeah, I'd go a little bit further and say with Trump, he didn't just manage to hold a consensus. Uh, I think he did play quite a big part in creating a, a consensus in Washington. I don't think it had yet formed when he came in. He's using it in the Republican primaries to hammer his opponents, and he then uses it very effectively against Clinton, who is still stuck in a kind of Russia is our principal geostrategic opponent. That's not completely wrong, obviously, as we're seeing today. But he's saying, you know, Hillary, China stole your lunch. And this is a line he's very successfully able to deploy. And as you're saying there, Helen, I remember a conversation I had with a China expert in the UK who was telling me that this bet that we made on the renminbi in London just hasn't really paid off. It's not really a big thing. It's still there. It's but it just it's just not that valuable. Because structurally, they haven't opened up. Belt and Road really became a dollar project. Right, I mean, yeah. dollar-centric rather than renminbi-centric. So you could, you could say that George Osborne and David Cameron, in one sort of, what's like in an essay, it makes sense. You just turn to China. Obviously, China's going to be the biggest country, the biggest economy in the world. Let's go and make some money from China. That That makes logical sense at first glance. But then when you dig down and say, well, there's still not the basic structure necessary for us to make that much money. It doesn't make sense to swap the United States for, for China. No, and also I think maybe I should have said this earlier, is that on the Hong Kong issue, you can actually see this during the supposed golden era as well. So 2014 is when this, what was called the umbrella movement mm, began yes, in Hong yeah. Kong, protests about changes to Hong Kong's electoral system. In response to that, the Chinese government makes it clear that it regards the 1984 agreement. So that was the one that Thatcher agreed. So the prelude to the handover in 1997 as legally null and void, and that China was only voluntarily standing by it. So there's trouble right there. Yeah. In terms of what's going to come by the end of the decade, the, the whole thing has to turn on not really thinking that geopolitically about the situation both in relation to the US, but also in relation to China's own yeah. position, that China is not going to be indifferent to the Hong Kong. Well, there's still that that utopianism, in a yeah. way, the sort of the Blairite, Clinton, Clintonite utopianism, that actually if everyone just acts rationally and if we just treat each other as the same kind of state, then we make a killing from China. Well, as you say, if you think geopolitically and look at the changes that are happening in China, then you might arrive at different conclusions. I mean, Xi Jinping had come in, to power in, was it 2012, and had launched this Made in China 2025 in 2015. So a lot mm-hmm. of these lots of these things are happening before we get to Britain's big moment that changes a lot, which is obviously Brexit in 2016, and then Donald Trump arriving in the presidency in 2016. And the twin effect of this is that golden period in Britain's relationship, which that has to be dropped. It's not sustainable. I mean, we've already seen that it's not that sustainable anyway. But outside of the EU, then that strategy of being the easiest place for Chinese money to come into Europe, the gateway into Europe, that doesn't make any sense because we're no longer in the EU and we're pursuing a different policy. And then obviously we're we're more vulnerable to American pressure on this because the security relationship becomes more important. Essentially, the, the British state is looking at itself in the world and saying, can we afford, now that we've left our biggest economic uh, partner uh, in the EU, can we afford to pull away from our closest security partner in the United States at exactly the same time? You, You speak to some French diplomats about this and they'll say, the moment Britain decided to leave the EU, it was very obvious that Britain was going to run not towards China, as George Osborne said, but run headlong back towards the United States. I mean, in a way, one interesting kind of factor would have been if Theresa May was willing to have kept George Osborne on as chancellor, whether he would <laughs> yeah. have tried to hold on to the policy. Because I do think that the end of the sacking of George Osborne is part of the story, because in a way he personified yeah. um, the strategy. And clearly there were people around Theresa May, her advisors, who just didn't believe in this in the same in the same way and you can see that the issue in the early months of Theresa May's premiership 
So over the summer of 2016, really comes to a head over the nuclear power question and Hinkley. Exactly, yeah. they paused it immediately. Well, partly that was because there was low, EDF were having lots of financial problems with it. I mean, almost every nuclear power project seems to get into these yeah. really difficult questions. But they said they were having a security review mm-hmm. as to whether it would continue or not. But it is noticeable that when that decision is taken in September 2016, the decision is to go ahead. They make some noises about got to have future security assessments of like future projects, but it is go ahead on Hinkley Point C. I would say this is the most fascinating thing about the Britain-China relationship is we have these swings from open, closed, open, but underneath it all, the continuity is really, I think, striking. And so you had the Osborne Cameron era, which is a more extreme opening up than the Blair Brown era, but it's it's along the same path. It's just a it's just they're just running at it a bit a bit quicker, and they're prepared to take more risks with the American security uh, relationship. And then Theresa May comes in, and she had been the one person in the cabinet had been most skeptical about this with her advisors. And then so she pauses it, and then she starts it up again. And she does the same thing with Huawei and Huawei's um, offer to upgrade Britain's uh, 5G uh, network, uh, which I think at the time the Americans had fallen behind and they couldn't offer anything. So Britain had a choice, really. It's Chinese or nobody. And this is when the Americans start really ratcheting up the pressure under Trump uh, on 5G. But interestingly, Theresa May, Securocrat, all of that, she resists that pressure uh, under Trump, just as Osborne and Cameron had resisted it over the investment bank. So the British state uh, is really pursuing the same policy. It's just more reluctant. It, but it, but it, it ends up concluding at every turn that it has no other option. And interestingly, the same thing happens with Boris Johnson. Yes, we should get to Johnson because I think it is more complicated because he obviously does change position in some respects. I think there is a difference between where Johnson ended up, not where he started, where he ended up and the others. But I think that the, uh, going back to um, Hinkley Point C is another really good example of what you've just been saying about Theresa May and Huawei, um, which is that the US officials were telling May government in 2017 that they really shouldn't be proceeding with nuclear power projects backed by um, Chinese state-supported companies. And they shouldn't be doing that because of the links between China General Nuclear Power Group and, the, as Americans said, the Chinese military. Correctly. <laughs> 2017 is when construction at Hinkley Point C begins. And then in 2019, so this is Trump, the State Department actually blacklists China General Nuclear Power yeah. Yeah. Group. So this is definitely the Theresa May government saying we are going to be autonomous on this. And it, it, it to be said, it looks like because... It's not really clear where the alternative investment um, partnerships are coming. Now, later, when it comes to the Sizewell C one, the the British state does actually buy out the Chinese um, investments and and, and we'll come to the the third nuclear one in a few minutes. But I think it it is really important to see that although that there looks like a, a repudiation of the Osborne era under Theresa May, once you dig under the surface... It's a lot more complicated. Uh, Absolutely. And the Americans are ratcheting up the pressure. So that decision on blacklisting the Chinese company is one piece of evidence of this ratchet, which just gets ever tighter on the UK. But we hold out. So Theresa May is then replaced by Boris Johnson, who then, I I think, essentially rubber stamps the decision that she'd made on nuclear and on Huawei. So he's pursuing the same policies. You can imagine the scene in government. You have somebody who's nominally more sceptical about this kind of thing. He gets presented with the with the case, the facts and the figures, how much money the British state has to invest in these things, where we're going to get the money from if we don't go with the Chinese, how much we've already invested in these kind of things, and arrives at the same decisions that Theresa May did, that uh, George Osborne and Cameron did, that Blair and Brown did. It's the same policy that's um, that's um, in 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 effect all the way through. Except uh, for obviously in the middle of 2020. Yeah, but Britain's response to the Americans when they say you can't trust the Chinese is say we have a cell 
in Huawei. And we know what we're doing. We've tested it. We're absolutely certain that there are no backdoors for the Chinese to spy on us because we're spying on them. So this is an important thing that takes us all the way back to what Gordon Brown did at the start. Then the Americans do something, which is to which to start putting sanctions on technology. And my understanding is that what really does for Britain's strategy is when the Americans sanction the American microchips that goes into Huawei products. So the Chinese can't use American technology, semiconductors and that kind of thing. And what that does for the Brits is to say, we knew how to monitor this technology because it was Western technology, American technology. We understood it. But if the Chinese are going to be using their own technology that they've developed themselves, we don't know what this is. We can't say to the government in good conscience, yeah, there isn't a backdoor. There isn't something that they're doing that we don't understand because we no longer understand their technology. Obviously, the Americans knew what they were doing here. It was a, it was an attempt geopolitically to, to strangle Chinese competition, but it also had the effect of bringing countries like the UK into line. And that's what happens. We eventually, we fold. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that tech war, which I think really Trump starts, if we can call it that, in the late autumn. Mm-hmm. Of, so the last months of like 2019 is when it goes up a gear. That goes hand in hand with protests in Hong Kong. Yes. Again, so these stories are actually like running in parallel, yes. I think, through much tougher approach to the technology question from the Trump administration. Now, interestingly, to begin with, Trump actually, when it comes to Hong Kong, being the kind of transactional person that he is and the way in which he mixes that with cult of personality, but there's another story, is that he's like, oh, Hong Kong's China's business. He doesn't really, he's not willing to go there. But then as we go through the months of the first months of the pandemic, once we're past, I think it's basically about March, April, the protests in Hong Kong start again. So the pandemic has pulled them people off the streets. Yeah. Then they start again. And actually some of it becomes quite directed against finance part of Hong Kong as well. Mm-hmm. And and then what we see is that in June of 2020, the Chinese introduced what's called the Hong Kong National Security Law, which effectively to all intents and purposes ends the substance of the 1984 agreement and the principle of one country, two systems. So I think it's the next month to July that Johnson reverses on Hawaii, but it's got definitely these two threads going on at the same time. Yeah, or three threads with the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think has the effect of changing public perception or maybe not changing it, but really heightening it or bringing it to the fore. And that maybe there was always a scepticism among the public about Chinese investment in nuclear power stations or critical infrastructure like that. But it didn't seem so acute. When the pandemic hits, I think it has the effect of making people question some of the very basics of British reliance on overseas technology, goods, and and, and then just a sort of hostility to China as the centre of this pandemic. As you say, with Hong Kong then an issue and Trump you being able to use it all to, to, to pressure the UK. And this is interestingly the point at which it really shifts, or we should say it gives the perception again of shifting. I think here it's like some things are shifting and other things are not. So for instance, we'll come back to the nuclear power isn't actually it, well, it partially it will it will partially shift, but the underlying structural issue there I think isn't shifting. We see, obviously, in the aftermath of the national security law in in Hong Kong, basically the Johnson government offering three million Hong Kong citizens who've got these British national overseas passports, and they could have applied for a path to British citizenship, which greatly angers the Chinese. So the Chinese government threatens that there won't be any more investment in the UK if that goes ahead. You've got the foreign secretary then who was attacking HSBC. Mm-hmm. about its ongoing presence in China, saying it was prioritising bankers' bonuses over mm-hmm. Hong Kong's citizen um, rights. And I think one of the things that's really quite revealing about this moment is that it really sets Britain apart from the rest of the European Union, or at least from France and Germany, which was dominating the European Union's policy on China. So by the end of the, this that year, 2020, Merkel and Macron are going to be pushing through the 
or equestrian agreement, to, yeah, yeah, because it doesn't get ratified, the investment agreement with China. And it's very difficult to see how this isn't actually a parting of the ways at that moment between Britain and Germany and France over China. Now, Hong Kong just doesn't play for the France and Germany like it plays yeah. uh, in Britain for these long historical reasons that we started talking about at the beginning um, of the um, episode. It comes undone for Merkel in like 2021, but it isn't really over the, the Hong Kong question. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of schizophrenia about Britain's uh, position uh, towards China during this time. I, so we start as clearly the most open to China in Europe, as we've discussed the culmination of, of many years of slowly opening up, then ratchets up. And then suddenly we are the most hostile to China, we're the most China hawkish. So it's not just that we are changing our decision on Huawei 5G, which the Europeans still holding out on. We are criticizing them over the Uyghur detention camp um, scandal. We are um, blacklisting CGTN, the uh, Chinese media company in uh, in Britain. We are offering this citizen, uh, path to citizenship for 3 million people in Hong Kong. And I do think this is a, a fascinating moment historically. If we started this episode talking about Hong Kong and these this kind of challenge that Margaret Thatcher faced, and she felt that the maximum she could do was 50,000 visas. I think when I was re reading up on this over the weekend, the British government felt that the absolute maximum that their offer would allow for, uh, people into the UK would be 225,000 over a long period of time. And then fast forward and Johnson's offering 3 million people with not a whisper of opposition from the Conservative backbenches or the Labour backbenches. And this is Brexit Britain, where we've just had a referendum where immigration has been a major part of the debate. And suddenly this enormous offer is made without any consternation at all. So the, the relationship is very up and down with China. And yet I do think once again, you see the sort of the British state starts to sort of put itself back in line. It forces the government back into a position because you get into this position of hostility. And I was reading over the weekend that the no British minister had been to China since 2018, I think it was. So 2018 to 2023, so five years, there'd been no British visit to China. And I was thinking- Well, obviously China was closed for some of that time because of the pandemic. Right. But it's still quite a long period yeah. of time, isn't it? And obviously Macron had been over in this period. I think Merkel had been over. Macron had been over with the with von der Leyen as well, I, I think. So there'd been this real freezing of relations. And I cast my mind back- to the start of that period, and it was Theresa May going over, and I was on this trip to China with Theresa May. And I remember at the time it feeling awfully empty, just devoid of any substance. I remember writing a piece saying, so why are we here? What have we agreed? And then you look back at it now, and the reason it was so empty was that this was supposed to be her signing up to the Belt and Road, and she actually put her foot down and didn't. And this meant that there was nothing really to the trip. So we ended up going to the Yangtze River and talking about, you know, microbeads in the river and how we're going to help clean it up. It was just ridiculous. But again, that's so, again, you can look back at it and think that's the start of this closing up to China. And then what happens after Johnson leaves? We've started opening back up ever so slowly and carefully, but you can see it. James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, went over not long ago, talked about how you've got to engage with China. And so the policy again, is kind of revealing itself underneath and that the British state is trying to have it both ways. The British state is trying to protect its security relationship with the US. It's, you know, it's accepted that it can't have things now like the 5G relationship with Huawei and, and certain bits of the nuclear relationship. But at the same time, it's once again trying to make sure it's as open as it can be commercially. So this is, again, the same policy, really. It's just much more restricted now. And not restricted, I don't think, by some kind of moral question that the Brits have come up with or some change of heart. It's that we've been forced into this position by American foreign policy. I think as well, though, there is something going on, though, in the parliamentary conservative party here, which is the dynamic, I think, that has to be put into play, mm -hmm. too. So in a way, I think there is a way of telling the story which would be, the Johnson government gets pushed 
by events and American pressure yeah. into this more confrontational policy, which you can see most clearly over the Hong Kong in terms of its manifestation. And then that Rishi Sunak has pulled back from that. But if you take the, the nuclear power question, that doesn't quite work as a story because actually, although when the integrated review in March of 2021 said China was a systemic um, competitor and a direct threat to UK security, when it came to decide later that year about what to do about the Chinese investment in Sizewell C, so that was the, 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 the smaller uh, investment, then Johnson basically said, it's okay. And to quote him, he said, what I don't want to do is pitch fork away wantingly all Chinese investment in this country or minimize the importance in this country of having a trading relationship with China. Whereas Rishi Sunak is, is in, at least he's in power, whose decision actually maybe more open to question. So this is November 22. Then the government announced that actually it had bought out. So the British state itself had bought out China General Nuclear Power Group out of Sizewell Sea. And then it said that, I think it was the same month, it said that there was this chip company in Newport Wafer Fab. And basically the government said the Chinese company had to sell, I think it was about 86% of it on national security. So yeah. actually there's this constant and grappling going on. And I think in part it's because there is pressure in the parliamentary Conservative Party from the backbenchers about, yeah. the, about the Chinese policy. So it is a matter of contested domestic politics now in the same way not in the same way, but at the same time as this pressure comes from the US. Yeah, that, that is true. I remember speaking to somebody very senior in the British state about this, and they were saying that one effect of Brexit in a way is that foreign policy, security questions, trade policy, they become melded more together and they are more tied to parliament. And of course, this is a sort of what Brexit has, has always sold itself against. But the idea is that if you had trade policy handled at a European level, and when Britain was a member of the EU, we were pushing, we were at the forefront of pushing for a, a joint economic relationship, a trade deal with, uh, with with China. Now that we're outside that, and trade is just, is a UK policy, and you have to think about it in line with security policy as one picture, that it's much more liable to pressure from from Parliament and the Conservative backbenches, or public uh, public pressure, public antipathy to China, I guess. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Plays into this. So that, that is interesting. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out over the long term. I'm still... I still have this sort of cynicism about that, or scepticism, that I, I wonder whether the British government would have pushed ahead on all of these things if it could, if it had the ability, if the Americans hadn't sanctioned these companies. I don't think, I don't know. Well, I think the other side of it that we could have spent a lot more time on and we haven't is actually the influence the other way around. The pressure, including within the Conservative Party, but not only really within the Conservative Party, to have a, a more pro-China policy because one of the things that's obviously gone on is that the Chinese state tries to essentially buy political influence yes. in in Western countries and then to have people who will lobby mm -hmm. from the inside, including some you know, retired politicians, yeah. for accommodation with China of, of looking at these questions and a business pragmatic business way there was a group of people obviously in this country whose material interests have come bound up with the maintenance of this relationship and that's one thing that comes out very strongly out of the intelligence and security committee parliament's report on china which i think was published earlier in the summer which essentially says look we have to worry about what it calls elite capture i mean absolutely i've spoken to people let's say he's not british but henry kissinger he will always have a line about 
the Chinese relationship and how we've got to understand the Chinese better and, and these kind of things. And somebody says, well, nobody ever reports his remarks without saying he has a commercial interest in the relationship with China. And you, know, you can see him 100 years old arriving in China and being greeted by Xi Jinping. You know, there is something about that. Inevitably, if you have people have worked in the foreign office here who go and work for perfectly legitimate companies, pressure groups, lobbying firms, and all the rest, who have clients that are Chinese companies. Well, Chinese companies directly controlled by the Chinese state. So you don't have to be like a massive conspiracy theorist to think there's something a bit off here about this. No, I think it's Chris Patton is quoted in the in this parliamentary report that I just mentioned. And he said, part of Chinese strategy is the, quote, cultivation of useful idiots through playing on things like the golden age of British-China relations. <laughs> well, I guess we'll see a lot more of how, how much capture and how many useful idiots we've, we've uh, got in the UK with these reports coming out into this spy, whether he is a spy or not, and how many others there are. So I mean, that maybe that will be the, the cue for us to, to, to do more episodes, Helen. Um, on the, I think on that note, we're probably done and thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed it please do share with your friends and family like and hit that subscribe button and see you next time these times is produced by you and daughtry 